Where's Tyler? Is he still in here? Oh, there he is. Uh, yeah, thank you all for moving to the left side. That was really curious. <laughs> if, if we, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> if um, I, we can pull the, if this is too yucky sounding, I, I can talk loud. We can have everybody move forward, Erica. And then uh, I, um, I can, we can just pull the, the amplification out altogether. Okay, okay. All right, well, I am, for the sake of time, going to go ahead and get started. We'll probably have a few more stragglers coming in here. Uh, so I am, I'm working towards a couple of points of introduction, and then we're going to dive in. Uh, I am working towards having a, a probably a two, possibly three week. Lately, it seems like all of my series are lasting a little longer than I mean them to. So we'll say maybe a two or three week series on elders uh, from Acts chapter 20, if you want to be reading ahead. <clears throat> and Paul says to the Ephesian elders that he did not hesitate to go from house to house preaching the whole counsel of God, okay? Um, and then in our passage from this morning that Matt preached in Second uh, Timothy 3.16, Paul says all scripture is profitable. And so the all scripture and the whole counsel includes the confusing bits, right? And we are definitely in some of the confusing bits tonight. And I'm excited about that because we believe that this is indeed inspired. It is the inspired word of God. I think that God has things to teach us through this portion of scripture. Um, and by the way, I would say that as I have come to understand the Old Testament better, the New Testament continues to just pop off the pages the more that I understand the Old Testament. So that's our goal tonight. Um, I generally teach the Old Testament chronologically, so I generally start, a, you know, with Genesis and Exodus, and then we kind of bop through a couple of things in Numbers and Deuteronomy, and we do Joshua and Judges, so we kind of we trace the historical development. I don't often pause and actually teach through Leviticus through Numbers, so it's going to be fun to do this tonight. Uh, but what I'm going to do, actually, is I'm going to, to at least at the beginning, I've, you've got a, a, a piece of paper there that says seven concepts um, basic to understanding the Old Testament. And so in these seven concepts, we're going to learn some things that I think will help you understand Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Leviticus better. Now, full disclosure, uh, I learned these seven concepts from my father-in-law, and I have taught them many times now. We teach them when we go to Israel. I've, I've possessed them somewhat. I've made a couple of alterations. I've left his alliterations uh, because they're just so fun, um, but yeah, I've made some, I've made some alterations, so if, if any of you have ever heard some of his Old Testament material, you have probably heard this before. But let me say, when I learned these things, uh, these seven concepts, I found the Old Testament so much, um, I, I found them so helpful to understanding the Old Testament. So I'm excited to share them with you tonight, uh, very excited, and I hope that we can, uh, I hope that when you leave here that you'll, you'll have the, ex the same experience that I had when I first went, 
went through this, okay? And we'll have some questions, just like last time. If you have any questions, feel free to raise your hand. I, I, all right, PowerPoints, one more thing. This is, this, I don't do this much, okay? So number one, don't get used to it, all right? And uh, number two, uh, tell me if something's going wrong, because I, I can't see it, which almost it certainly will, okay? All right, so let me pray, and then we will, we will start with the seven concepts uh, basic to understanding the Old Testament. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these people who have come out tonight uh, at five o'clock on a Sunday evening to study Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Father, I ask that you would bless that effort, uh, that sacrifice even, and that as a result of the night, we can say that we see the fruit of that study in the things that we've learned and the things that we're able to understand. And God, I pray that these things would continue to bear fruit uh, in the days and weeks and months and years to come. I pray that Hope Bible Church would be a church that takes these things, that understands them, obeys them, applies them. I, I, I ask that this would not just be mere intellectual learning, but that it would change our hearts and that we would understand the scriptures better. So please do this for us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the nation of Israel and the purposes of God. All right, so uh, concept number one, the intent and purpose the intent and importance of Israel's influence. Okay, so this is, this is going to be a little bit of a, of a review from where we were last time, but I think it's really important, all right? So thinking back to last time, if we think, take the youngest uh, possible view of the earth, which, which I do, I think that that would mean that creation took place around 4,000 B.C., Okay. And then Abraham lived and uh, did his, his ministry in Canaan around 2000 B.C. And so like we said, in Genesis 1 through 11, we have 2,000 years of history. We have more time covered in Genesis 1 through 11 than we have in the rest of the Old Testament. Okay? And then what happens in Genesis 12, if you remember from last time, is God makes this extremely significant choice to deal with one man, and that is a man named Abram. And here's the thing, and I think this is so important. You could easily get the impression that in choosing Abram, who will become Abraham, that God is dismissing the rest of the world and deciding that he is only going to deal with this family and the nation that comes from this family. But that couldn't be further from the truth. So I'll just read it to you. Genesis 12 should be familiar. One through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make you a great nation and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I shall curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right? So Concept number one, God chose Israel to be salt and light in the midst of a, of a wicked world. This is very important for, under, for us to understand, 
And the significance of that is that in choosing Israel, God was not neglecting or rejecting the rest of the people's of the world. He's not abandoning anybody. And he says to Abraham right there in uh, chapter 12, he says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, so God is not just wandering around through this time, and, and this isn't working, and so he destroys, you know, the, the world with water, and he saves Noah, and then there's the Tower of Babel, and he's like, this isn't working either, so I guess I'll try, I guess I'll try it with this guy, Abram. That is not what happens. Abram is going to be, and the family that comes through him is going to be a channel through which the rest of the world is going to be blessed, okay? So then that brings us up to Exodus 19, which we also looked at last, last time. So that is the scene at Mount Sinai. Israel is there. They are receiving the law, and, and God says to Moses, who, who then says it to the people, Exodus 19, 5, 5 and 6, now, if, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay? So there it is again. All the earth is mine. You're going to be my possession above, among all the peoples, and you're going to be a kingdom, and you're going to be, you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All right? So, so you have that covenant with Abraham that takes place in Genesis 12, and then you have the, the covenant at Sinai that takes place at, at, in uh, Exodus chapter 19. And here we learn God's intention for these people is that they will be a kingdom of priests. So it's not that they're going to all be priests, but they are going to be a nation through whom the people of the earth will be able to come to God. A priest is an intermediary. So the nation of Israel is going to be an intermediary nation through whom the other nations are going to become, be able to come to God, and they're going to be a holy nation. All right? So throughout the Old Testament, if you're going to become a follower of Yahweh, if you're a Gentile and you want to become a follower of Yahweh, what, what, can, can you be saved? Can a Gentile be saved in the Old Testament? Yes. Can you name some of them? Rahab is one. Ruth is one. Naaman is one. That's right. Okay, but in order for a Gentile to be saved, then that person had to become identified with the nation of Israel, right? Rahab had to give up her Canaanite heritage and become an Israelite. Ruth, very famously, gave up her Moabite heritage. Ruth says to Naomi in Ruth 1.16, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. So that her famous statement illustrates that, that she knows that from that point forward, she's going to identify with Israel and her God and she will no longer be identified as a Moabite. And right, one of the ongoing glories of the new covenant, right, is that we as Gentiles can come to God as Gentiles. We no longer have to identify with the nation of Israel. In Christ, people of all ethnicities and nations and blessings are brought together. Paul says in Ephesians 2, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the uh, covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ, 
you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So now we can come directly to God, but in the Old Testament, up until the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you were going to become a follower of Yahweh, you had to become an Israelite. All right, so, so they're going to be a priestly nation through whom people can come to Yahweh, and then secondly, they're going to be a holy nation in order for God to put himself on display to the nations, Israel needed to be a nation set apart. And so we know that one aspect of God's holiness is his otherness, his separateness. He is the living God, but he is separate from creation as opposed to all the gods uh, of the nations, which were just part of, the, part of creation. They were, they were men with superpowers. God is not a man with superpowers. He is distinct. He is other. He is different. God is distinct, and so he says to his nation, I am holy, therefore you shall be holy. And as we're going to see, that's not just moral holiness, but it's actual physical set-apartness. And God is going to give them a land, and they're going to be set-apart uh, to themselves, as we shall see in just a moment, okay? All right, so I know that's all sort of review from last time, but I just wanted to bring us up to, to speed there, okay? So we've got Genesis chapter 12, God's calling of Abraham, Genesis, uh, Exodus chapter 19, the, the covenant at Mount Sinai, where God says you are going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation through whom the rest of the world is going to be blessed. So in choosing Israel, God was not neglecting or rejecting the rest of the peoples of the world. All right? Concept number two. The principle of providential placement, a.k.a. your seventh grade geography teacher taught you something important about the study of the Old Testament. I remember learning about the Fertile Crescent in the seventh grade. Does anybody else remember learning about the Fertile Crescent? Yes. At the time, it did not seem helpful. Now it seems helpful. I'm going to, the fertile crescent is going to explode for you tonight in meaning. You're going to go home and tell your friends about the fertile crescent. All right. Um, all right, so here's the concept. God placed Israel at the most strategic spot on the most important international highway in the ancient world, and that is the fertile crescent. All right, let me, let me explain. Uh, here you go. In ancient Middle East, there were two modern civilizations. I'm not, not modern. Two major civilizations, two important civilizations. One was Egypt to the south. Did a circle pop up? Okay, that's Egypt. It popped up before I said it? Okay, good. Did another one pop up? Yeah, okay, good. Um, so there's Egypt, which is down to the south, at the Nile, right? And then there's Mesopotamia up to the north that is around the Tigris. Okay, so the Fertile Crescent is important because it reaches between those two major civilizations. It's sometimes referred to as the Way of the Patriarchs because that is the path that Abram would have traveled from Mesopotamia, all right? So what's important about that is the Fertile Crescent is land that could be traveled, settled, and cultivated as opposed to the land around it on which none of those things could occur. So to the south of the Fertile Crescent is the brutal Arabian Desert. Let me see what I have here. Yeah, to the south is the, the brutal Arabian Desert down there. You can see that. Uh, to the north, we find the Caucasus Mountains. 
all right? And so this fertile crescent, I'm going to just walk over here. This fertile crescent is what would have been traveled by military, by traders, um, by caravans. That's the way that they would have gone to get from one place to another. Here's the point. Israel was providentially placed by God at the narrowest spot on that fertile crescent, all right? Israel is no bigger than the state of New Jersey, right? When, you, when, you, when you're in Israel, you are, you are surprised at how quickly you can get from one end to the, to the other. It's about 120 miles north to south, and it's 40 to 80 miles um, uh, east to west, okay? So it's very small. It has very few natural defenses. It has no natural harbors or natural resources, and yet it's in this strategic location. And so why is that important? It's important because you can guard it. You can guard it. And when you can guard it, and there's caravans going through it, what can you do? Yes, you can tax it. That's right, all right? So, so Israel is there. Uh, Israel, it's the most important international highway, and it, it passes down through Israel. So what we have here, uh, if you can see, this is, this is the Jezreel Valley. It's, it's the bottleneck. If you were on the Fertile Crescent, you came down this way, by the way, right here at the top of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it was called the, key, the Sea of Knesseret in the Old Testament. All right, but it's called the Sea of Galilee in the New Testament. Right there at the top, uh, when you come down here through the Hula Valley, you, you come to a city that is very well known, that is Capernaum, all right? Why, why is Capernaum important? It's where Jesus moved his ministry, right? That was the home base of Jesus' ministry. Uh, he, he, he grew up in Nazareth, but he moved himself to Capernaum. Don't you think it kind of makes sense that Jesus moved himself to this place that was this thoroughfare? So as Jesus is preaching and teaching and doing miracles, not only do you have the people of Capernaum, who, who, uh, of Israel, who are there, but you have all of the people who are coming and going on this international highway, okay? So you would come down through this Hula Valley, you would come around at Capernaum, go into this, this valley of Jezreel, Okay, you've got up here, you've got Nazareth, which sits right here on this side of the, Gal- of, the, of the valley of Jezreel. You've got Mount Carmel that sits at the south of the valley of Jezreel. Okay, and as you come through there, there's only three passes that you can take to get out of there. Okay, they come around through Mount Carmel and they come down and then you come down onto this this is the coastal plain, so if you're traveling through, you've got one of these three passes that you can take, and then you can come down onto this coastal plain. Your only other option is to come down the Jordan Valley, down through the Dead Sea, and up this way, which is the wilderness, all right? And we'll, we'll look at that in just a moment, okay? All right, so going through there, this is the, this is the most direct route. By the way, more battles have been fought right here in this spot, in that valley of Jezreel, than any other place on the face of the earth. Napoleon called it the perfect battlefield, right? Right here at the south portion of the valley of Jezreel, there sits a city called Megiddo, okay? Uh, Har Megiddo, 
is, is how it is spoken of in the Bible, the, the, the mountain of Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo, Armageddon, which is Armageddon. That's where we get our English word Armageddon. So when the Revelation talks about the battle that's going to take place where the blood runs up to the necks of the horses, and, and that, that is the battle that takes place around Armageddon, it takes place right there in the valley of Jezreel, okay? So you're talking about real estate here that is very, very important. It has been very important, and it will continue to be very important throughout the history of the world, all right? So it's the great bottleneck on the international highway, and this is why it was necessary for any nation that wanted to dominate the Mediterranean to possess Israel, okay? So the significance in choosing Israel, God was not neglecting or rejecting the rest of the peoples of the world. In fact, God did not send Israel to the world, but he brought the world to Israel, all right? So, do you ever find it strange that God never says to Israel, go therefore and make disciples, right? He doesn't say that to Israel. He's, Jesus says it to the disciples after his ministry in the New Testament. Israel is never told to go out and to be missionaries. They are actually given a place where they are supposed to stay put, and God is going to bring the world to them, all right? When you have caravans going through a place, caravans were the, the like news casts of the ancient world. When you had a caravan going through a place, the people in the caravan would then carry news of that place to the other places that they went out in the world. Professional storytellers would attach themselves to these caravans and they would come into a town and they would be treated like kings because they carried the reports of the other kingdoms and people would gather around and they would hear these reports. And so through these caravans, news would be carried out to all the reaches, the far reaches of the world. And so here we have God living in the midst of the nations. God is going to live there. He is going to put his temple there, the, the temple of God, the God who does things, the glory cloud, I, I believe, dwelt over the temple. I, I believe you could see it the living God dwelling there. And so he provides for Israel to be this place where the peoples of the world are going to come back and forth through there and they're going to go out from there and they're going to say, you should see this place, the, the living God. Like our gods fall over and when they fall over, their heads fall off, right? Their God is like living in a temple and he's alive and he's doing things, all right? So God puts Israel right here in this place, so that the nations would come and see what he's doing. All right, I would like to pause here for just a second. I'm going to go off PowerPoint, or this isn't PowerPoint, Keynote, I think it's called, on uh, the Mac. Uh, in your, in, in, do you have a second set of notes? You do, I believe. Perfect. Um, <laughs> On the second set of notes, you should have a, a, a piece at the, on the first page there that's uh, the land in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Do you see that? Um, this is uh, a, a couple of things that I want to say here about the land. If you've been reading through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you might have noticed that the land is almost a character unto itself. It's very important. God is going to give 
Israel a land. So let me talk to you about this. So just switch over to those notes for a minute and follow along with me for a second. In Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 15, this is the second time that God appears to Abram. He says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. The Hebrew Bible is a book about Abraham's descendants and the land that God is going to give them, okay? Even the Christian scriptures portray the land as the beginning of Israel's history. When Stephen preaches in that great sermon in Acts chapter 7, he begins with the biblical account of God's words to Abraham, depart from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And so in many ways, the Hebrew Bible carries the story of this land that was given to Abraham all the way to the return from Babylon back to the land in 5 BC, okay? So the land is a constant character in the Old Testament. The prayers of the Jews in exile are always about returning to the land. For centuries, the Passover celebration included the words, next year in Jerusalem, because they were longing to return to the land. All right, so in light of that, I just I wanted to make six observations because this is important as we've been reading through here. Six observations about the land in Leviticus through Deuteronomy. Number one, the land is a gift, but have you noticed it has to be dispossessed before it can be possessed. So in Numbers chapter 33, God says, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. Okay, so the first thing that Israel has to do as they're going to be given the land, they have to dispossess the land before they can possess it. Number two, have you ever noticed God gave them the land as it was, filled with cities and houses and vineyards? I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but sometimes I think we picture Joshua as like just marauding through the land, destroying and burning and pillaging. It, when you read Joshua, which will be coming up in just a few, few days, notice Joshua only burns three cities. He burns Jericho because that's the first city, and God has his reasons for that, and we'll talk about that next time. Then he burns, burns Ai, A-I, right? because there's the whole kerfuffle there with uh, Achan and his sin. So he burns Jericho, he burns Ai, and then he burns a city in the north called, called Hazor. All the rest of the cities, they defeat the kings and they just move in. It, it, it's always like astounding to me. It would, you know, it would be like God says, you know, hey, Georgia, I'm going to give you Florida, you know, and, and, you know, you can, you can burn Jacksonville and Tampa and, you know, Naples, but the rest of it I'm just giving you, you know, and you can just move in. The, the, the cities, the buildings, the, the orange groves, Disney World, maybe we will burn that, but, you know, that, the, it's just yours. It's just yours, all right? So um, Joshua 24, again, I'm a I know I'm a little ahead of myself, but Joshua says, I gave you a land in which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, 
and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So God gave them a land that was ready to be lived in. As a matter of fact, some of, some, you, there are places where it talks about that God did not give them the land all at once so that the, the wild animals wouldn't take over. It was, it was a partial, as, as they took over the land, God gave them the land. Third, the land always refers to actual land. It's not some higher reality, okay? This, it's not a spiritual reality. Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, it, it, it is a distinct land. It has boundaries. Exodus 3.8 says it is a land flowing with milk and honey. Deuteronomy 8, 7 through 10 says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing with valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall be blessed, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the land that he has given you, okay? So it's a real land. It's not a spiritual promise. It's a tangible promise, a real land filled with blessings. And then number four, Israel's presence in the land is very much tied to their obedience. This is, this is another important part. I think, I think you've already seen some of this in Deuteronomy, but you'll definitely see it right at the end of Deuteronomy. Uh, Leviticus 18 you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Listen to this. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was there before you. Again, this personification of the land the land as a character in the story. If you disobey, if you don't keep my laws, if you live like the, the people who were here before, the land will vomit you out like it vomited out the Canaanites. All right? So just very, 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 very picturesque here regarding the land. Number five, Moses anticipates in Deuteronomy that Israel will not fulfill, fulfill her part in the covenant. I, I was talking with the students in um, high school this morning, and frankly, I got a little carried away, and there was a visitor there, and I think she was a little startled. Um, but uh, I, I was just talking about how much prophecy there actually is, even in the book of Deuteronomy, as far back as the book of Deuteronomy. Open with me just for a minute to Deuteronomy chapter 28, okay, because this is a passage in which we see the blessings and the cursings for, the blessings for obedience and the cursings for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, uh, let's see, it's a really long chapter, 58, let's start in verse 58. Okay, so this is under the, thing, the, the point here that Moses anticipates that Israel will not fulfill her part in the covenant. Verse 58, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, 
Then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were numerous, as numerous as the stars of the heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you, and you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Look at verse 64. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among those nations you will find no respite, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you a trembling heart and falling eyes and languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if it were only evening, and at evening you shall say, if only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised that you should never make again, and there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. Strong words. If you fail to keep the law of this covenant... You will be cast out of the land. Their obedience was tied to their presence in the land. Okay? But then that leads to point number six. Moses anticipates God's promise of forgiveness and future restoration. So then if you turn to to chapter 30, verses 1 through 3, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. Okay? So there you have all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy the promise of a future restoration. So there's going to be a time in the future when Israel disobeys obeys to the point where the land vomits them out. And they're going to be scattered over all the nations. And they're going to have all of these terrible things happen to them. But then one day they're going to be brought back to the land and there's promise of both a future restoration and forgiveness of sins. And we're going to see more about that future restoration when we get to the prophets, okay? Let me tell you then why spend time focusing on these land promises and, and then and then Le- Leviticus through Deuteronomy, and then I'll take a couple of questions if we have any. Number one, why? okay, so why focus on these land promises? Number one, because the land is all over the place in these three books. It's a major focus of Moses, and there's far-reaching promises, and I would suggest some of these far-reaching promises still await fulfillment, all right? So there are promises within the books of Moses that we are still waiting to be fulfilled. Secondly, I do believe 
that many Christians today disregard the promise of the land. I say I do believe it. Many Christians today disregard the promise of the land. Uh, I, one, of my, one of my boys had a, a Bible text that I read because I like to read what they're reading, especially when it comes to the Bible. And one of the headings regarding the promises of God was it's, it's all about Jesus, it's not about real estate. And I'm like, why can't it be both? Why can't it be both? I think it's about Jesus, I'm sure it's about Jesus, but I also think it can be about real estate. And then third, related to that, if it's not about real estate, he says as he takes one step higher, then we have a promise, we have a problem with the promises of God. We have a problem. If it's not at least somewhat, these, as you read through these, these portions of the Scripture and you see these promises, if, if those aren't promises that God intends to fulfill, then what other promises might we be supposed to think? Well, maybe God didn't really mean what He said He meant, right? And, and by the way, you guys, I don't think that's ever a good place to start. I don't think a good place for us to start is ever to say, what if God didn't really mean what he said he meant? And then finally, I think we miss out on one of the great acts of God in our day, which I would suggest is, is God bringing Israel back to the land under almost impossible circumstances. And, and I, I, you know, I'll show my hand here and say, I do believe that 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 act that happened in 1948 was a part of, of God fulfilling these promises all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, okay? We'll skip the prophecy of the, the dry bones because I don't have time. You can go read Ezekiel 37 tonight and see what you think of that. Um, but let me, I want to read to you, Herman Wouk, have you ever read, anybody ever read um, Winds of War, War and Remembrance? Anybody? Yes, there's one, there's a couple. Uh, there's a, there's a miniseries that's not very good. Don't watch that. Read the thing. It's, it's World War II. Herman Wouk wrote this sweeping, uh, you know, a historical fiction. There are two of them, two volumes, Winds of War, War and Remembrance. He wrote a lot of other. He wrote The Cain Mutiny. Anybody ever read The Cain Mutiny? Yeah. Uh, he has a book called This Is My God, and it's, he's a secular Jewish person. He's not, certainly not a Christian. He's not even a particularly observant Jew. Uh, but he says this, he has, a, he has a, a, a chapter on the land, and he says, the first time I saw the lights of Lydia Airport in the dusk from a descending plane, I experienced a sense of awe that I do not expect to know again in my lifetime. So there, there is a real connection between the Jewish people and this land, okay? And uh, I, I think that, that we, we do ourselves a disservice to not notice those things as we read through, through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so actually, as we move on through these next uh, few concepts, uh, a couple of them have to do with that land, all right? Okay, any questions? I know I just said a lot of things. Yes, Tyler. Okay. Yes. Yes. 
Yeah, so Deuteronomy 6 is the promise I'm going to give you this land that you didn't work for, and then Joshua 24 is, is the fulfillment of that. We just read Joshua 24 this morning in, in, our, in our high school ministry, and, you know, Joshua, that's where Joshua famously says, you know, you can pick between Yahweh and the gods of the nations, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then all the people say, we choose Yahweh, and then Joshua says, no, you don't. And he says, you're not going to do this. And they say, yes, we will. And he kind of says, no, you're not. And I guess, I'm guessing because he read, he read Moses, right? He, read, he knew Deuteronomy, and he knew that there were these, there were these prophecies that Israel was, was indeed not going to be faithful, okay? Um, any other questions, comments? Yes? What was that? Oh, Okay. Hey, last time, some of, the, some of the questions and comments from the children were some of the most insightful, so I'm not passing over anybody at this point. No offense, Tyler, yours was very insightful. <laughs> All right, uh, concept number three, the dynamics of distinctive divisions. All right, we won't spend a lot of time here. Uh, the concept here is that the land, oh yeah, we're back to the seven concepts portion of your notes. I'm sorry for the swerving back and forth. Uh, the land of Israel, though very small, is marked by very five distinct geographical divisions. When you go to Israel for the first time, I think it's safe to say you will be surprised by the variety of geography that exists there. So from the west to the east, you have the coastal plains, the Shephelah, uh, the central hill country, the Jordan Rift, and the Transjordan Plateau. I'll be quick here. Um, okay, so there's the coastal plains right there. Uh, so uh, if you look there to the, to the left on the screen, you can see the, the coastal plains spreading out there uh, today. Oh, that one went fast, hold on. Uh, there's the view from Gath, one of the, the, the Philistine cities to the north. So that's a very flat portion of Israel. So this would be the coast. Tel Aviv is on the coast. Um, this, is, this is a city here on the coast. Um, there's the Jezreel Valley from Mount Carmel. Okay, so this is all kind of a part of that, that coastal plain area. I just want to say, who knows what happened at Mount Carmel? Yes? Yeah, Elijah, so we don't know exactly where that took place, but this is Mount Carmel, where somewhere on this mountain, uh, Elijah had his famous uh, encounter with the prophets of Baal. So somewhere right over here, this is Nazareth, okay? So the Nazareth Ridge, this is the Jezreel Valley, um, and the Nazareth Ridge sits right here. Nazareth is right there. And I, I, I just remember being stunned to think that Jesus grew up somewhere right around here, and he could just look over this valley, and he could see that mountain, Mount Carmel, and he could, I'm sure, of course, he knew the, the stories of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and you can even picture that maybe him and, and some of his little brothers and sisters maybe packed a lunch sometime and walked across the valley and came and played on these mountains, okay? But it, it's just, it's another illustration of how, of how small but diverse this land is, Okay? Um, all right, and then there's Tel Megiddo. I already mentioned that. I don't know why this is here, 
uh, but we'll go with it. That's Tel Megiddo, so that's, that's the, the, the ruins of Megiddo right there where I mentioned Armageddon, Har Megiddo. Um, so that's, this is the area around where the battle is going to take place there in the Jezreel Valley. Okay, so that's the coastal plains. Uh, and then you have here the Shvela, which is sort of the like foothills. Okay, um, I'm going somewhere with this. This is not just free geography. So the, the Shvela there is there in blue. Here's some pictures of the Shvela. You see it's kind of, it's not as green. It's kind of dying out. Brown, there's the hills of the Shvela with the Judean hills in the background. Um, okay, and then next you have the central hill country. All right, so now we're getting, we're getting higher up. We're getting up into the mountains. Jerusalem is actually pretty, pretty high up. Sometimes it can be very hot in Tel Aviv, and it can be nice and cool up in the, up in the hills where Jerusalem is. All right, so there's the rocky Judean hills with some of the terraced hillsides where the, the olive trees and the vines grow. Um, there's some more terraced hillsides, uh, more terraced hillsides. And there is the city of Jerusalem, which sits, you can see the Dome of the Rock there at the Temple Mount. If you're, if you're in the back, the Dome of the Rock is right here. This is standing on the Mount of Olives, looking down onto the, the Temple Mount. So that's Jerusalem, which is so, so Jerusalem is up in the mountains, okay? And then when you go all the way to the east, the Jordan Rift, the deepest place on the whole face of the earth, okay? So it's like straight down from Jerusalem. You can stand on the Mount of Olives and you can look down into that Jordan Rift. You can see on a clear day, you can see Jericho, you can see the Jordan River down from the Mount of Olives if you look down to the east, okay? So it sits down there in that very low. The Dead Sea is down here at the bottom, all right? There's uh, the Jordan River near the, the Sea of Galilee, uh, that's Beit Shan, that's a city of the Old Testament. Okay, so there's the Jordan Rift, so you can see <clears throat> it's, starting to, it's starting to look very wildernessy. This is, This is, you know, honestly, it's, it's the hottest place I've ever been in, the, in my entire life. Uh, and there's looking across the Dead Sea towards Jordan. Home. <laughs> uh, yeah, in Gedi, in the wilderness where David fled from Saul. There's Masada looking out towards the Dead Sea, and there's the Judean wilderness. You know, when you see the Judean wilderness like this, like, when you hear the Bible speak of the wilderness, like, I don't know what you picture, but, like, it's true wilderness. Like, it is wilderness. It, it's, it's wilderness. Right? That's all I have to say about that. Okay. Yes. Yes. That's right. And then you come back up to the Transjordanian Plateau, which is on the other side then of the Jordan Valley. All right, I'm moving quickly here. There's the, there's the plateau. Uh, all that to say, the significance. Though the military and the commerce was going back and forth, you know, on these passes, on this side and on this side, so coming down through the passes, going down the coastal plain, coming, coming down the Jordanian Plateau, uh, Israel could enjoy remarkable seclusion in the hill country where most of her life was lived, all right? Um, so you've got the passes that are coming down there where people are traveling, and then you've got Judea living up in that hill country 
fairly secluded. All right, so hold on. Lots of paths, and there's, there's where uh, Israel lives. When you're up in Jerusalem, it was really hard to get at Jerusalem. Jerusalem's up in the hills. It was hard to attack Jerusalem. And, you know, they lived there fairly secluded. Like, you have this real sense that when Nebuchadnezzar finally takes Jerusalem, it's because God gave it to him. Because it was really hard for him to get there, to get up there. And we'll, we'll talk about that another time, okay? All right, yes. There's only five. Did I, were there six? Oh, yeah, I don't know what that six is. Yeah, I don't know. Mediterranean Sea. Yeah, scratch that out. Um, all right, number four. I'll be quick on this one. I preached on this a few weeks ago. If you remember the wisdom and will of God concerning the worship and walk of Israel, that's one of the reasons why I preached on it because I wanted to spend a little time. Basically, the concept of this. Okay, remember, God at Mount Sinai said Israel is going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, okay? The concept is Yahweh gave Israel a law code, the Mosaic Old Covenant, which touched every facet of public life and shaped the theology and the testimony of the nation, all right? Um, And the significance is then the law code was intended by God to be a means by which individuals, Israelites or proselytes, could draw near to God and by which Israel would be distinct from the nations, all right? I would just remind you, I read this to you a few weeks ago, but I'll read it to you again because it's really important. Deuteronomy 4 5 through 8 says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Okay? So literally, people should have come through Israel and they should have said, you wouldn't believe this nation that has this living God that does things, and that has given them this amazing law. It's, it's a great society. Like, had Israel lived according to their law, they would have been a wonderful society. And I, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, but the impulse of the sinful human heart is always to believe that whatever God commanded us is not for our good right? That is our impulse. We want to think what God commanded is not for our good. That was the lie of the serpent. You know, did, did God really say? Had the nation of Israel obeyed, not only would they have been a light to the nations, but they would have been a truly happy and amazing society, all right? So the laws were not hindrances to real life. They were designed to touch every facet of daily life, all right? Um, I gave a few examples. I'll just mention a couple, you know, if you're going to build a, a house and you're going to have a room at the top of your roof, you should build a 
fence up there, a wall, so that people don't fall off. Like, very reasonable, right? Very reasonable. Um, talked about Deuteronomy 23, 9 through 14, how to build a latrine, you know? A lot of cities in that time had sewage running just down the middle of the street. God instructed Israel about how to go outside and dig a hole and take care of your business and then come back in and keep all that outside of the house. It was centuries before anybody realized that that was making everybody sick, right? God included it in their law code. Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 3, has the provision that for debtors, every seven years you get a rest from the claim. Every seven years. I, I mentioned this when I preached on it, but can you imagine if your mortgage had a provision in it where every seven years you got a year to just have a year off and recoup and then you pick up again uh, 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 on the following year? That would be great, right? Anybody for that? If you want to start a bank, Jay, you might mention that to Wells Fargo. They might be interested in that. Um, all right, so concept number five. Sorry. Yeah, there it is. Regular rainfall, rapid runoff, and God's requirement of righteousness. So I've already gotten you really excited about geography. Now I'm going to get you excited about meteorology. Your seventh grade teacher doesn't even know about this. All right. Um, okay, if you remember from Sunday school, uh, famine is a big problem right, in all the stories. There's always famine. There's always drought. Okay, so here's the concept. By reason of geology, geography, and topography of the land, the people of Israel were constantly dependent on the former and latter rains in order to survive agriculturally, okay? So, there are two distinct seasons of the year in the land of Israel. There is the winter rainy season, okay? It runs from October of, or November uh, to March or April. And so it begins with what is called the former rains and it ends with the latter rains. And you must have regular rainfall in between the former and the latter rains. Okay, these are the rains that are necessary to grow the crops. These are the necessary, um, the rains that are necessary to grow barley and wheat and hay. These are the crops that you need to, to live life, to eat bread, to survive. And then it's harvested in the spring times, okay? So after the latter rains, the latter rains come and then they are harvested before the heat of the summer, all right? And then you have the summer dry season when there is absolutely no rain at all. But in the hill country, there's this heavy dew each night, and that dew is sufficient to grow the vineyards and the orchard crops, grapes, figs, pomegranates, and olives, okay? These things then are harvested in the fall, all right? So, the, the, the things that are harvested in the, in the summer, so that grow um, between November and, and uh, the, the, the latter rains, so those are the things that you need to survive. And then the things that grow in the summer months with that dew, those are the things that, that, that make life nice. Olive oil for light, for frying things, uh, grapes for making wine, okay? And, and you want all of it, all right? So the significance, by the way, in 1 Samuel 12, Samuel is 
praying. He's, he's preaching to the people. He's talking about that Saul is going to be the king. I don't know if you remember this story. And, and they are like, they, they kind of want some kind of sign, or he says, I'm going to give you a sign. And it's the middle of summer, and he says, a thunderstorm is going to come. And all the people are like, wow. Well, you know, we're like, it's July. Like, of course there's a thunderstorm. In Israel, there would not be a thunderstorm in July. Like, that is a miracle, okay? You don't have thunderstorms in July. All right, so it rains during the rainy season, and actually, Jerusalem, during the rainy season, gets like almost as much rain every year as London gets, okay? It's, you think of it as very dry, but it actually gets a lot of rain up there in the, the, the hill country, and then you have the dry season during which there is no rain at all, all right? Uh, wait, the significance God intended the abiding dependence upon regular and recurring rainfall to be to the people of Israel a very practical and compelling impetus to obedience. In other words, if you don't obey, you don't get the rain. So the land of God that he's given them, he is going to watch over it, and he is going to keep his people on a short leash. And so you had to live from harvest to harvest in utter dependence upon God. Because if God withholds the rains, then you can't even plow the ground. If you don't get those hard former rains, you can't even break up the soil, okay? And so this is something very unique to the kingdom of Israel. I won't read it to you, but in Deuteronomy chapter 11, God says, he says, this land isn't like the land of Egypt. This, this land isn't fed by the Nile. The, the land of Egypt is fed by the Nile. Pharaoh thinks that he owns the Nile. Pharaoh thinks he's a god. The Nile floods once a year, and it waters the land. The land of Israel is not like that. The land of Israel is a land that God watches over, and he gives the rain when you need the rain. So God keeps them on a short leash, all right? Any questions about that? Because you'll see this throughout Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I'm only asking that mainly so I can take a drink of water. Okay. Number six. The cycle of calendar crops and celebrations. Yes. Enough to provide water. So the question is, how heavy are we talking about with this dew? Um, and it's enough to provide water for those crops. So those crops that are able to grow on dry hillsides, there's enough water for the grapes and the olives and those kinds of things. Pomegranates, who doesn't like pomegranates? Those things to grow. Okay, it's a good question. All right, number six. Uh, the cycle of calendar, climate, crops, and celebrations. So the concept here is several elements of the Mosaic Law were designed to insinuate the life of the people of Israel into, a, 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 into the life of a people of Israel, a very deliberate rhythm. So you have the weekly Sabbath, and then you have the cycle of the Sabbath years, the year of Jubilee, and the cycles of tithes and offerings to be brought to the house of the Lord and most important then, you have this annual cycle of these three pilgrimage feasts. You have Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. 
all right? So those are these three pilgrimage feasts. Included in them are these seven distinguishable feasts in this cycle of three seasons per year. And so what, what we're talking about here, and you've seen this as you read, as in Leviticus, it talks about the different celebrations, the different feasts, the different um, the, the journeys to Jerusalem that they'll, they'll, they'll end up taking eventually. And, and God is just building this rhythm into their character, with, into their calendar with these mandated feasts. Okay, so, so you have the springtime feasts, which the primary feast is Passover. Um, the relationship to the agricultural cycle is that the former rains necessary to break up the fallow soil you come, and then throughout the winter, you have the regular rains, and then leading up to the Passover, you have the latter rains coming, okay? So you're, you're looking forward to the, the harvest, okay? And so within the Passover, then, you have these three distinguishable feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, remembering the exodus from Egypt and celebrating the harvest of the early grain crops, Right? Jesus dies at Passover, right? And then he, uh, uh, is, is his ascension at first, help me out here. Is the, ascension, is the ascension at first fruits or is the resurrection at first fruits? Resurrection at first fruits. Resurrection, he, he, he raises from the dead at the feast of first fruits. Is that right? Somebody help me out here. Okay, I'll look that up later. We're moving on. All right, then you have the only summer feast, which is Pentecost. Okay, Jesus ascends then at Pentecost. So this is the, this is the feast then um, where you are celebrating the completion of the grain harvest. This feast comes 50 days after the Sabbath or the Passover cycle, after the latter rains. Okay, and then after the feast of Pentecost, there's not going to be any rain uh, for the summer months, all right? And then we have the fall feasts, three distinguishable feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles, all right? And the relationship to the agricultural cycle is this is a time of rejoicing, is the most delightful crop is being brought in, and there's much prayer for rain, especially the Feast of Tabernacles. Yom Kippur is the, the Day of Atonement. That's, that's the, the feast, the Day of Atonement. Okay, I, I point out, I point out the, so Jesus, Jesus died at Passover, and he rose from the dead at first fruits, and he ascended at Pentecost. What's the next feast? The feast of Trumpets. What does it say that we're going to hear when Jesus appears. Trumpet's going to sound. I'm not setting any dates, okay? I'm just saying, in the fall, you just might want to be a little extra prepared, okay? That's all I'm saying. Yes, I know, but I'm just, just, I'm just pointing out that that's the next feast. Yes, It changes. God knows when it's going to be. <laughs> um, but yeah, it does. It changes from year to year. So there, there's, different, there's different seasons when those, those feasts are going to take place, okay? Uh, there's a nice picture of the fall feasts and the spring feasts 
and the Feast of Pentecost there. Okay? And see, this is why I don't do these things. All right, so the concept. Several elements of the Mosaic Law were designed to insinuate into the life of the people of Israel a very deliberate rhythm, most important, the annual cycle of these three pilgrimage feasts. The significance, the focus of that rhythm was King Yahweh himself. I actually find the Jewish rhythm um, of... Of, of these seasons of the year when, when your heart is directed to various different things, I, I find that very appealing. You know, I mean, we have Christmas. We're like, I know, we're like as non-liturgical as you get here at Hope Bible Church, right? But we've got Christmas where we think about the, the birth of Christ, and we've got the Easter where we think about the death and the resurrection of Christ. Um, I, I, another of Herman Wook's books, is called Inside Outside, and it's his story. Um, I really like Herman Wook, okay? Um, but it's his account of kind of growing up. It's a fictionalized, but it's got a lot of himself there, growing up as a Jewish boy in New York City. And he talks about the Sabbath observance and how every night in his home, every Friday, you know, at sundown, because Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday, and how, you know, his mom would have prepared a meal, and how it was just from sundown on, on Friday to sundown on Saturday, the Sabbath day was just a family day together. Like, they were together, they ate together, they read together, they sang songs together, they got up the next morning, they spent time together, and then when the Sabbath was over, they, they went back to work. I find that very appealing. Like, there's nothing about that that causes me to be like, like, it's nice. That seems nice to me. This, you know, these seasons of the year, I mean, I always say, I'm editorializing here for just a second, but, you know, we like, we have this one period of sort of celebration in our calendar, you know, where we get to, from Christmas to New Year's, you know, we all, nobody knows what day it is, and we kind of, you know, feast, and we, we, we take some time off work, and we're together. You know, Israel did that three times a year, you know, and, and that, that too, that too is very, appealing to me. Okay, so, so just the picture here is that God built this rhythm of worship into their calendar, and the focus of that rhythm was God. Thankfulness for the, the grain crops, thankfulness for the whole crop coming in, and then thankfulness for the fall crops, and then prayer that God would provide the, the crops, the, the rains again, so that the crops would come the following year. Okay, and then finally, the last, number seven, the struggle for the soul, the soul, the soil, and the soul of Israel. This one's short. The concept, in order to bear the name of Yahweh before the Lord, Israel was expected to remain distinct from the world, twofold significance. Because of her position as the unique people of Yahweh, Israel has almost always been hated by her neighbors. So number one, that land that we talked about, it has almost always been controversial. There has always been a struggle for that soil. We were talking in um, high school ministry or middle, uh, youth ministry today about the Temple Mount and about how it's the most disputed, tiny little piece of property in the whole world. The Muslims claim it, the Christians claim it, the Jews claim it. You know, and it's, it's this powder keg that if anybody does the wrong thing on that spot at any time, it could explode. Okay? That's not by accident. 
Like, that's, that's built in to all of these things that we've just been reading here. And then the struggle, in spite of God's demand that she remain distinct from the world, she has often been tempted to abandon her distinctiveness and to assimilate. Hence, the struggle for the soul of Israel. We were also talking today about how Israel is a very secular state today. It is a very atheistic state. When they came out of the Holocaust, when they founded their new country, they saw everything that had gone before them as weak. And they didn't want to look to the rabbis anymore. And they didn't want to look to the Torah anymore. And they said, we're going to build a nation and we're going to be really strong. And that's what they've done. It is a godless, strong nation. And that typifies Israel throughout the ages, at least since the, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And so, until now, the struggle for the soul of Israel has continued. And we believe one day Israel is going to return in mass. A generation of Israelites is going to return to the Messiah. They are going to weep and mourn for the one whom they have pierced, as Zechariah says, right? So, but until that day, there is going to be a struggle for the soil and a struggle for the soul of Israel. In Psalm 137, um, it, it commands us, it says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for peace in her walls and prosperity in her palaces. And I, I don't think that's a bad prayer because when that day comes, the Messiah is going to have returned. And that's good for all of us, okay? And I just want you to see how we see the seeds of that you know, you may think that all the prophecy in the Bible is, is located in Daniel and Revelation. It's not. We see the seeds of that all the way back in, in Deuteronomy. Okay? So, any questions? Yes? Yes. Yes. Pentecost was the receiving of the Holy... Yeah, so, close to the same time. I'm off, I'm off by a couple of days. I feel like the only person who came prepared for class was Owen. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a group grade, though. So, any other questions? You know, it's almost my bedtime. All right, real quickly, got a few minutes left. I just want to catch you up then with the narrative, with the history. All right, so turn to page three in your notes. So after that little excursus there on the land, no more of that. Yeah, it's over. All right, way more comfortable without that. All right, I want to just talk quickly about what the content then is as we talk about, so that we're talking about the story, okay? How is the story of the people of Israel progressing? So at the end of Exodus, I have there Exodus 40 that talks about the tent, the tabernacle has been built, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. Okay? So, the At the very end, the last paragraph of Exodus, God moves into the tabernacle, and then when you turn the page to the very first sentence of Leviticus, it says, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Okay, so God moves into the tabernacle. He takes his seat on the throne over the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the mercy seat. And then as we turn the page to Leviticus, what does God start to do? He starts to... To, um, to, to give laws, right? That's what he does. He starts to speak the law in the book of Leviticus. So all of Leviticus 1, all the way to Numbers 10.10, 10, if you noticed, takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. So about a year and 20 days. And so during that time, Yahweh is communicating the law to Moses from the tabernacle. All right? And God is instructing this covenant nation about the standards and the procedures by which they might approach God, who is now taken up residence in their midst. You're going to be a holy, you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Let me tell you how you're going to be a holy nation. Um, let me just, I have that excursus there, mainly because I wanted to write down excursus. Uh, but regarding the purpose and efficacy of Old Testament sacrifices, before the substitutionary death of, Calvary, of Jesus at Calvary, blood sacrifice was given by God as the only sufficient means by which men might enjoy a harmonious relationship with himself. Such sacrifice offered in conformity with the standards established by God did accomplish real forgiveness of sin. All that to say, they weren't just going through the motions in making these sacrifices, all right? It meant something. Yes, we know now from Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins, but they weren't just play-acting. So, number three, however, the sacrificial system was limited in a number of ways. Number one, the sacrifices were not in and of themselves efficacious. They were spiritually acceptable and effectual only when prompted by genuine faith, faith which manifests itself not only in the bringing of the sacrifice, but also in the happy obedience to the moral will of Yahweh. The point, get this, men were never saved by works. There was not a different way of salvation in the sacrificial system. It was not an act of sacrificing which saved the worshiper. It was always the heart of faith and obedience and dependence upon the one who demanded the sacrifice. So they were limited in scope. Each personal sacrifice focused upon one sin which the offer was anxious to have forgiven, with the possible exception of the sacrifice offered on the Day of Atonement. And there was no sacrifice to cover Adamic sin, nor for a sin done in defiance of God and his law, okay? I always notice, we're going to do 2 Samuel in a few weeks. We're going to start 2 Samuel, and eventually we're going to get to Bathsheba, right? David and Bathsheba. 
And, and, you know, David in Psalm 51, you know, what does he say? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. When David is confronted by Nathan, David says, it's me. I did it. I'm the man. But what we don't have recorded in there ever is that Jesus, uh, David like grabbed a bull and headed for the temple. It doesn't say that. You know, he doesn't say, okay, I got to go make a sacrifice. Largely because there, there was no sacrifice for high-handed rebellion against God. And that's what it was. I mean, he, he committed adultery with another man's wife, and then he killed him. It's high-handed rebellion. And so what can David do? He can only throw himself on the mercy of God, right? He can only come to God and beg forgiveness for his sins, all right? So, so much, in other words, David could be forgiven of that horrible sin because his heart was right, Whereas so many of the worshipers of Yahweh brought sacrifices that God in the prophets says, I don't even want your sacrifices because your heart's not right, okay? So even still, there was always that matter of the heart, the heart of the worshiper coming before God to bring the sacrifice. Um, I have a list there of the laws concerning the sacrifices. You can read those yourself only to say, and I, I, um, Erica's dad always says, and I like this a lot, if there is, there is a provision in the sacrifices for any impulse that anyone might have to, to worship Yahweh. You know, so do you, do you need confession of sin? There's, there's a sacrifice for that. Have you had something good happen to you? Do you want to thank God? There's a sacrifice for that. Do you just want to praise him? There's a sacrifice for that. And I, I like that. Like, I like the thought of that, and I wonder if there shouldn't be some impulse in us as well. It's, it's like any impulse that we have, how do we respond? How are we thankful for what God has given us? How do we respond in confession? And, and God has provided within this Old Testament law a way for the, the Jewish people to act on all of those different impulses. Uh, you can see there the law concerning the Day of Atonement, on page 7, turn with me over to then the content of Numbers. So Israel at the beginning of Numbers is at the base of Mount Sinai, and they're getting prepared to resume the journey. So they've been there for the entire book of Leviticus. Israel at the beginning of Numbers is at the foot of Mount Sinai. Israel, when the book comes to a close, is on the border of the Promised Land in the land of Edom. So Numbers is the account of the travels of Israel from Mount Sinai to the border of the promised land. There's that numbering. Yes. It's, uh, the 40 years is contained within Numbers. So they are, they are at Mount Sinai, then we'll, we'll talk, they go to Kadesh Barnea, where they rebel against God, and they say they can't enter the land. Then God says, as discipline for that, you'll have 40 years where you're wandering. And then at the end of Numbers, they are at the, 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 the Jordan River, uh, on the other side of the Jordan River, waiting to go into the land. But at this point, they've, they've already done the 40 years of wandering. Is that clear to everybody? All right, so that happens within Numbers. All right, Numbers, as I always say, you got the beginning of Numbers. There's a lot of Numbers there. 
goes on and on. Did you make it through that okay? Some of you may not have made it through that yet. Some of you may be finishing that right now as I'm speaking. Um, that's a very long portion. What's the purpose of this numbering? To determine how large an army Israel can muster. Who was numbered at this time? All the fighting men, all those 20 years of age and older. And what was the total number of fighting men in Israel at this time? 603,550. And then you have the order of the camp there. Uh, let's see. Turn to page 10. Here you go, Owen. The journey resumes. They journey from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. The nation complains. Miriam and Aaron challenge Moses' leadership. And then you have the failure at Kadesh Barnea and the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Spies were in the land 40 days. Ten spies brought an unbelieving report, and in response to this rebellion, Yahweh determines to destroy Israel. Moses intercedes, pleads for the reputation of Yahweh, and it is in response to this dilemma that Yahweh announces the judgment to befall the unbelieving generation. And the result is that Yahweh raises up a believing nation, possibly the most godly generation of Israelites who have ever lived. And the ten unbelieving spies die immediately of a plague. Uh, you have the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Aaron's rod produces fruit. That ends up in the, mark, the Ark of the Covenant. God gets, uh, Moses gets water from the rock a second time. God says to speak to the rock. Moses strikes the rock. Uh, thus Yahweh judges Moses and says, that he treated the Lord as, uh, he did not treat the Lord as holy in the sight of the people. And so Moses does not get to go into the, the promised land. I have here the victories over Arad, Sihon, and Og. I just point those out because Sihon and Og get listed all the way to the end as examples of the things that God has done in a victory. So it's like, it's like God brought us out of Egypt and he defeated Sihon and Og. We see that over and over again. So you have these victories there at the end of Numbers, Balak and Balaam. I sent you the video. I hope you watched the video there of the, the prophet Balaam, the star prophecy. Um, all right, and then quickly, Deuteronomy, which means these are the words in Hebrew. And the point of the book is this is a restatement, it's a sermon. It's a sermon by Moses that is a restatement of the law, adjusted in emphasis and order for the present situation as they anticipate entering into the land. The historical situation, okay, is the nation now sits on the plains of Moab just to the east of Jericho, separated from Canaan only by the river of Jordan. Because of his sin, Moses will not be allowed to enter the land. Knowing this, he assembles the elders and the congregation and he speaks to them the book of Deuteronomy. And somebody wrote it down. So it says the second law. And that the purpose of the book of Deuteronomy is to prepare the new generation for their interest in entrance into the promised land. And then I have there the death of Moses. Okay, we talked about this last time. This was obviously not pimmed by Moses. I don't believe that Moses was like, you know, and Moses died. I don't, I don't believe that's the way it went down. I think that somebody else added this as an addendum uh, to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, that, that, that does not 
harm my understanding of the inspiration of Scripture if somebody, perhaps Joseph, appended the book to give a fitting conclusion. Moses is allowed to ascend Mount Nebo and see uh, across the River Jordan into the land of Canaan. This is the only glimpse of the long-sought land that Moses ever receives in this life. I think very possibly Moses was given some kind of supernatural enablement as he sees the land. And then he dies, and Joshua succeeds him in leadership over the nation of Israel. And so that brings us to the end of Deuteronomy. And then on, like, Wednesday, you'll turn the page and you'll start reading the book of Joshua. And Joshua will begin leading the people. All right, it is 6.30 on the dot. Any last questions? It's actually 6.29. I know you're going to tell me that. Can you tell? <laughs> I was like, I'm going to preempt that. Oh, look, it's 6.30 now. Uh, any, any final questions? Any final thoughts? I know this is a bit of a drinking of a fire hydrant that we're doing here, but we're covering a lot of ground, and I'm trying to get you caught up as we go. Nothing? Very thorough. All right. Joshua, great. Until you get to the distribution of the land, hang on in there a little bit, okay? Gets, gets a little bit tough. And then Judges, man. Judges, Ruth, first, things are really, things are going to really take off all the way to First Chronicles, and we'll talk about that in a few months, okay? Because we'll, we'll need to talk about the beginning of First Chronicles a little bit. I'll have to get you through that, all right? Uh, I, hope you're, I hope you're pressing on, and I hope that this isn't the last time that you do this, too. Read the whole Bible. All right, let me pray, and we'll close. Father, thank you for this time together, and God, I know I've said a lot of words, and I just would ask that you would use them in the hearts of these hearers to be able to understand better. Father, if there are questions, to be able to, to find out answers to those questions, and Lord, for all of us, just that that we would truly be able to, to understand that all Scripture is given by, by you, and all Scripture, even numbers, is given to us by you. And we thank you for it. We thank you for the things that you teach us there. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we no longer need the sacrifice of bulls and goats. Um, thank you for your mercy to us, even, even in the midst of high-handed rebellion. Um, God, you have, you have saved us out of our, out of our sin. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. We look forward to his return. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for peace in her walls and prosperity in her palaces. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.